Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SCS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast with a host with no glasses because it's the first day back and I forgot them, but we bring you the best guests in true crime, and that hasn't changed at all. And I'll tell you what, I was just telling Bob and Dr. Ann that it sure feels like a first day back, but we're going to get over uh, the hump and bring you an amazing show today. This one is super fascinating because it combines it combines one of the all-time most notorious serial killers uh, with di- di- a direct relationship to Bob Mata Jr., and we'll tell you about that, uh, who is joining us, and of course, the great Dr. Ann Burgess. Uh, who has studied serial killers the better part of her life. And so I'm expecting a really fascinating episode uh, because of that. Without further ado, Bob Mata Jr. is the man in the beard. His father, Bob Sr., was John Wayne Gacy's defense attorney. And uh, Bob Jr. launched an other podcast in addition to Defense Diaries, which paints a chilling picture of the infamous serial killer, and his attempts to manipulate even his own attorneys. Now, Bob Mata Sr. said the following quote originally back in the day. He says, it's approximately 15 and a half hours of unedited, just completely graphic audio of Gacy. He had this audio of Gacy, Bob Mata said. He's had two and a half months, this is leading up to the trial, to think about what to do about forming some kind of theory for defense in his own mind. Gacy, Bob Mata Sr. says, begins to waffle, suggesting he doesn't remember most of the killings, that they may have been committed by others, or even his own alter ego, a guy he called Jack Hanley. Um, Bob Mata Sr. said he was absolutely a sociopath, and his inability to have any kind of empathy was chilling. This is the kind of stuff Dr. Ann Burgess knows all too well through her studies. Bob Mata Jr., not to confuse everyone, the man on the screen, examines the possibility of more victims and even more accomplices, and that's why the thumbnail says something along the lines of the story isn't over yet. So introducing formally our best guest, you've got Bob Mata Jr., He's a partner with the Chicago Criminal Defense and Kane County family law firm of Mata and Mata LLC. He concentrates his practice in family law, divorce, and criminal defense, but he's also host of the very popular Defense Diaries podcast. Bob, how are you? I'm awesome, Joel. How are you, my friend? Good. Get your cell phone up and get that barcode. That's a smart move right there. And uh, subscribe to uh, Bob's podcast. It's really good. Uh, Dr. Ann Burgess. She is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse. She is the author of A Killer by Design, which she signed for me at CrimeCon, and we have extra copies we are going to be giving away uh, in our giveaway. So uh, look for that soon. In 2016, I don't think any of you can say this, she was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing. Uh, the super successful Netflix show Mindhunter is loosely based on her work, and Dakota Fanning and her sister right now are working on a docu-series about Dr. Ann Burgess's life. So thank you so much. Very quickly, you can support us on Patreon, on YouTube. If you're listening, please listen on the audio platform, Spotify, Audible, Apple, 
please give us five stars there. The merch store is open for business tomorrow. Big day. Uh, no Phil and Scott tomorrow. They had a conflict, but Tim Jansen is coming back to the show. 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. We're discussing the OnlyFans murder. It's an interesting case with a woman named Courtney Clenny who's accused of stabbing to death her boyfriend. She says it was in self-defense. Who is the real victim? We are examining that question uh, tomorrow. Bob Mata, Jr., when did you first learn of the name John Wayne Gacy? It's one of the most uh, spooky and eerie names in all of true crime. Uh, oddly enough, so my parents had divorced when I was young, like five years old, and uh, my father had allowed my mother, who had remarried, to move out to Colorado. And in the winter of 1978, uh, I had flown back for a uh, Christmas vacation to spend a week or so with my dad. And on uh, the 21st of December, which is the date that Gacy was arrested, the date that they ended up uncovering the first few bodies from this crawl space, that case broke. And it was me, my father, and my uncle sitting on the couch in his little one-bedroom apartment in uh, Oak Park, Illinois. And I'm like, nine and uh we're watching this story and you know i, I don't really know what's going on. And, and my father gets real excited at one point when sam amaranti who was my father's co-counsel the gacy case came on tv and my dad's like oh my god i know that guy he's like oh he's like i wonder if he needs help on the case my dad just left the public defender's office uh at 26 which is the house of pain there's, you know, it's Cook County, Chicago. It's like he dealt with the worst of the worst. He was the chief felony uh, public defender there. So he was very, very skilled trial lawyer. And, you know, he's like, should I call him? Should I try to, you know, this is way before emails, texts, any of that stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, call him. That's, you know, are you going to be on TV? So he's like, next day runs out, sends a Western telegram to Amaranti. Say, you know, I just hung my shingle. Do you need help with the case? And Sam calls him back five minutes after getting the telegram at my dad's little office. He picks up the phone. Sam's like, oh, my God, yeah, I need help on the case. He's like, you need to file a motion to try to get the, you know, this doctor from making this statement about uh, Gacy being crazy. You know, my dad's like, well, you know, there's the First Amendment. It's like, yeah. so he's like, but, you know, I, I think it, so my dad freaks out a little bit. He's I think the weight of what was happening, because remember, they're pulling the bodies out. It took months for them to get everything out of that house in terms of victims' bodies. So I think by the morning, the next morning, they had probably pulled about six, they believed to be with six victims out of the crawl space. So at that point, they didn't know what it was other than this guy had at least killed six people. They had no idea how many there were going to be, how long it was going to go on, how many bodies they were going to find. And so my dad ends up saying, oh, look, I, I got too much stuff to do and ends up hanging the phone up and then, you know, thinks about it for about 10 minutes and then calls Sam back and uh, ultimately gets on the case. So that that was my first introduction to John Wayne Gacy. Um, hmm. So at that point, uh, you know, it became a very odd but yet very uh, prolific part of my life for the next 40 years, man. A uh, big part of your life. Um, don't want to panic you in any way, Bob, but your audio is cutting out a little bit. Uh, if it keeps up, we might have you switch to your phone. I don't know if, um, but 
as as of right now we are okay a heineman wear joel's glasses first day back totally forgot about it um and same question to you and then i cannot forget uh the coe worked really hard to put together an amazing uh package that's what we call it in news donna barkley bob mata i love defense diaries she says but and um one of the biggest and most seminal cases obviously in the in the 80s and 70s when did you first hear the name john wayne casey well i heard the name uh a little bit different than than bob did uh but i heard it from bob wrestler now bob wrestler grew up in chicago and when he heard the they were driving he and his family were driving back to chicago for christmas which is obviously about the same time Bob said he heard it and he heard the case and his wife said he, he she, she didn't see him the rest of the of a uh, week because he was so excited about getting onto this case from the FBI standpoint and one of the reasons is he lived right near where where Gacy did and in fact later found out that Gacy had actually delivered papers or had done something and, and knew the area. And so he felt a real uh, kind of that, that it was right from his own city that this case had come. And he spent a lot of time on the case from the investigative standpoint. So that was when I first heard about that. And every time that you'd get down to the academy, he'd either find something else out or, or whatever. So and he in his uh, he had I actually have, because Bob gave them to me, letters from prison when Gacy was in prison and also videos of interviews he had done. So I feel like, um, and he was, of course, part of our, our study. So that was my uh, understanding of the case back, and that would have been in the late 70s. There you go. Um, without further ado, let me play this. It's about a two-minute little piece to fill in the audience fill in some of the holes and then we'll switch back to Bob Mata and we'll start to go through some audio and I've got some questions for both the guests. So here we go. You want to say I slept in the same house with a dead body. Okay. You want to say I slept in the same house with a dead body. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll buy that. But in the same room, no. And besides the dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. Like most notorious serial killers, John Wayne Gacy lived a double life as a fairly successful independent contractor living in a home he bought for himself and his wife in a suburb of Chicago. But all that changed after police arrested him. In 1978, one of John Wayne Gacy's victims, Robert Peast, was reported missing. After investigating, police learned that Gacy was the last person to have seen him. Police got a search warrant and when they went into Gacy's home, detectives found the bodies of 29 boys and young men in or around Gacy's house. Reports say that the area around the house had a foul stench for years, but Gacy had told his wife and friends that visited that the smell was a result of moisture buildup. Police also found four other bodies in the nearby Desplaines River. All of these victims were murdered between 1972 and 1978. John Wayne Gacy, known for his performances as a clown at charitable events and children's parties, has been dubbed the Clown Killer, one of the most notorious serial killers in U.S. history. When I got into clown makeup, I regressed into childhood. It was fun being a clown because you could... You, you could be yourself or, or just let yourself go and act a fool. You could be slapstick and, and funny and have a good time. That's why I always enjoyed clowning. Clowning has taken a bad name. Gacy pleaded innocent by reason of insanity, 
But the jury convicted John Wayne Gacy and found him guilty of all 33 murders he was accused of. Gacy was executed by lethal injection in 1994. Only 28 of Gacy's 33 alleged victims have been conclusively identified. And there he is. So, Bob Mata, um, the biggest and most obvious question is, um, are there more victims and were there accomplices in these cases? We think so. Uh, So, the thing about Gacy is that, so he had two two kids work with them and this was about i don't know if you've ever heard of dean coral uh down in texas but he had predated gacy uh there there was like a one-year overlap between when coral and one of his accomplices ended up shooting and killing him uh and when gacy is thought to have started his spree uh his 18 eight or six eight i i think it's been i think it predated honestly 72 which is when tim mccoy was killed the first thought to be victim uh but there's this one year overlap so so casey who was supposed to be in prison by the way uh he had picked up a 10-year bid in iowa for uh basically doing the same thing that he did to all his victims in chicago this kid lived um and he ended up getting a 10-year uh uh bid on it and it was a sodomy charge because they they really couldn't figure it out back then they didn't have aggravated sexual assault back then uh and and so he ended up getting out in 18 so in theory gacy should have been in in prison for up until 1978 uh but unfortunately they let him out um but ultimately when i started podcast which is you know the gacy tapes on defense diaries um and I'm listening to the tapes and I'm typing into the case really like no one ever has. Like I, like I've seen everything I've read everything. Um, you know, but I, I really dug in in a way that no one had ever dug in all the police parts. I'm uncovering things in this old Chicago cop named Bill Dorsch, uh, happened upon the podcast and he reached out to me and he's a man. He's like, I've been looking for you for 20 years. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, he's like, you're the first guy that I've ever, ever heard that's willing to try to tell the truth about, you know, this case and what went on with it. And, you know, so I start getting some background on Bill Dorsch, who was an old, like I said, Chicago homicide detective. Um, And at that point, uh, I realized that Bill was very much of the same mindset that we both believed that there were additional victims and and the primary reason for both of us initially was the fact that JC was thought to have gone dormant after McCoy, which was in 1972, his first victim. And then uh, his, his next victim is thought to have been uh, John Bukovich in 1975. So, so there, their thought process, that there being the state and law enforcement, was that he didn't kill for those three years. The issue was for Gacy was that he was married to Carol Hoff. Carol lived in the house. Carol's two daughters lived in the house. Uh, Carol's mother lived in the house. And John's mother lived in the house for a period of time. So he had a lot of, a lot of women and children living in that house after McCoy was killed 
when Carol first moved into the house, which he had bought like six or seven months prior to them getting married, Tim, Tim Coy was down there. Now Gacy was put down in the crawl space. He didn't, he didn't understand that the body was going to smell. Um, and when Carol moved in, she's like, my God, what is, what is that smell? I, I cannot stand the smell. Like, like he's like, Oh, I don't know. She's like, there's flies coming out of the, the dryer vent. She's like, what, what is, what is going on? So he's like, Oh, there must be a down there. I'll take care of it. So he goes down, pours some lime in, and from that point forward, he knows that Carol cannot bury bodies down in the cross just because she's present and there's always people there. So during that time frame, he happens to be the maintenance man at an apartment building in a location in Chicago proper uh, in Miami and Elston. Now that, that, that particular address uh, is pretty infamous in that um, there's been a sham dig that was done by the Cook County Sheriff's Police that Bill Dorsch basically bullied them into doing and uh, which they really didn't uh, my dog is going nuts over a bone over here. Um, <laughs> you know, that he didn't, uh, they, they basically put up a tent, did a 15 minute dig after Bill had basically snuck onto the property, done a ground, pet, uh, ground penetrating radar scan. And ultimately, um, you know, they, they brought the GPR guys in, they brought them into the tent. Everybody knew about it. It was high publicity. They kept everybody, at a great distance behind, you know, crime scene tape. They bring the two GPR guys and they say, okay, well, where, where should we dig or where shouldn't we dig? The two guys, Dittmer, the other guy who was local in the United States, uh, said, okay, well, here, don't dig. There was a big bush there. That's not where we saw the anomalies. Dig here. And then the cops said, okay, we need you to, we need you to leave the tent. So they're like, what? Why would you need us to leave the tent? So kicked out of the tent. They cut, they're in there for 15 minutes. They come out, they drop like a plate. They're like, yeah, we're done. There's nothing here. At that point, Bill, what we all knew, like in terms of like my discovery doing the Gacy series, is that Chicago police did not want any bodies. It's like it's known to be a Chicago serial killer case, but understand that it wasn't. Chicago proper, meaning it was it was Cook County, but it wasn't Chicago, Illinois. They didn't want to have 33 bodies hung on their name in terms of tourism and everything else that comes along with that kind of that kind of number and body count. So they had no interest. They were thrilled that it happened in in Norwood Park, unincorporated Norwood Park. So they had no interest in doing anything. And what I soon discovered as I was pouring through the police ports is that after Gates arrested, and like what we see with, say, like Rex Hewerman, where when he's arrested, they start trying to put pieces together in Nevada, down in South Carolina, in New Jersey. They're trying to figure out, does the guy have victims? None of that was ever. All they did is uncover the bodies from the property. And the five bodies that he had confessed to dumping in the Desplaines River. They did no investigation for a guy that was active for, for six years. That thing, like, I, I, again, I believe that he predated in this period of time for the three years that he had Carol 
and his mother-in-law, his mother and the two girls living in the house, all of them, uh, like just constantly present. Like I think Carol would leave occasionally. And at some point, Gacy would not have stopped killing. And, and Dr. Dr. Ann can, can sound in on this. Like after he got the taste of it, there would have been no way that he would have stopped killing for three years. Do, do killers go dormant? Sure they do, but not at the beginning, not for, not for that period of time. And he had access to this property. And so Bill had been interviewing people from this apartment complex for, for like years like Bill just started digging in and they were all like, yeah, Gacy was digging these trenches and they, they would be like six feet long, four feet deep. And then they'd always get covered up under, under cover of darkness in the middle of the night, like all of them. So Bill like interviews all the residents and they all are saying the same thing that, that Gacy had dug all these trenches and so ultimately, Bill wasn't satisfied with the dig that they did over at uh, I mean, Elston. I was satisfied with it. I feel like we both understand that again, Chicago does not want any of this. They want it to be dead bare. They want the case to be done. They don't understand why we're still why we're still digging into it like this, you know. So yeah. Hey Bob, I'm gonna um have I'm going to have Ann jump in there. And, yeah. um, and, and Bob, just so you know, um, and I don't know if people are having the same issue, but you're cutting in and out a little bit. Do you have your cell phone? I just reset you the link. Maybe if you can hop on, on via cell. Um, you know what? Let, let me try to move down to uh, the first. Like my, my internet has been acting up the past two days. Yeah, Actually, it's you're coming you're, out. Yeah. So um I'm going to, I'm going to bounce you off for a second. I'm going to pick this up with Ann and see if you can uh, maybe hop on either on your cell or, uh, or in a better spot, but I'm going to bounce you right out and you just okay. come back in when you're good. Okay. I'll thanks. Right. Sure, so, yeah. uh, and so what about my, before we get into this, you know, kind of dormant period of three years, a bunch of things obviously struck me about him. The clown costume is the most obvious. Yes. Um, and he mentions that there's a sound bite where you can kind of like, you know, let go. But what what do you make of that? Is that the first time that we've seen a serial killer enjoy dressing up as a clown? Is there anything parallel to this? Oh, I think the clown. I think you're right on on the clown is a a key factor in this and what it meant to him. If you want to get into some of the psychology of it, because with a clown, you you're disguised. Uh, people don't know. Who, generally aren't going to know who you are. And and as he says, he can act in any way that he wants to. So. You, you, we often hear about the serial killers that say, well, there are two sides of me, the, the dark side and the, the normal side or whatever you want to. And so for Gacy, this clown outfit certainly gave him another way of pretending. And he could, um, if I remember some of the information that if a child, he didn't like what a child was doing, he could be rather sadistic with them and, and cause them to cry or something like that. So it wasn't all that he was doing things that make you laugh or make the child laugh. So I think, and he also said that he made, instead of making rounded parts on his face, look, look at his mouth, the way it goes, it goes up in these sharp. Yeah. There is uh so, and that's not usually the way clowns do it. So he did things on, on the face, at least when he sets it up that, 
even show some of the sadistic aspect to him. I just think that, and, and Ned Smith is right. He was, it's really, really creepy what he did and how he played it out. And yet look at the reaction he got. Um, you know, people didn't necessarily see this as something negative. So yeah. that's important. And I think to go back to the three years that there seems to be a dormant part is I, I don't agree. I would agree that that's not dormant, that they're not, he's not killing. There has to be some explanation, even though he's got all these people in the South, where's he putting the bodies? He could well be putting the bodies elsewhere. And there's always been this question about were there more, did he have more victims? And how about the accomplices? I think that's your question on this. And he did have two young men that would help to dig so that he did have uh, people at least were digging, whether they were involved in any of the murders, we don't know that. But there's still so much that has not been adequately explained. I think Bob tried to do a little bit of that with the um, with the way the police reaction was and not wanting necessarily to have the accounting for all, all of the bodies. But I, I know that most people that have studied this, Bob Ressler for one, I think Karen Conti also is they really felt that there were more victims and could well have had other accomplices. I think some other people have even weighed in on that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what, I think that's what Bob is, is basically saying. We'll, we'll nail him down on that a little bit more, but Morgan here and Morgan sadism. Wow. What made him so angry while well, I was reading about his background? Um, his father was an abusive alcoholic um, and it says here, um, his mother tried to shield her son from his father's abuse, which resulted in, in accusations that he was, quote unquote, a sissy and a, quote unquote, mama's boy who would, quote unquote, probably grow up queer. That's what his own father said about him. Um, how often would these notorious serial killers do we, you know, is there a father figure like this who is basically, you know, evil in their own right. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing about our serial killer study is more often than not, we found the absent father that, um, so you have to look at it. In this case, you're saying that the father was much more involved and was more uh, very abusive. And that from all the reports I've seen, that's actually true. I think it's interesting that his name is that he was named after this big um, Western uh John Wayne, the masculine part, and then the father is the one that's giving him all these this bad uh, calling him the, the names that he was calling him. So my question is: it, it sounds like there was some certainly some dysfunction, uh, the father abusive, whatever. But is that enough to have turned him into the killer? Or as you say, where's the anger? You have to have anger in, in murder. So where, where does that come from? And when do you first see it? Uh, that's always the, the, the big question. So I don't know whether Bob Mata has any answers to that, but I, my, that is one question. And my other question, in case he could answer it, is as he increases, is it that he increases his murders because there are no witnesses or because the police are not following up carefully? Or is it just the regular, what we see in serial killers to get away with things, that it just escalates and the anger escalates and the murders escalate? Um, uh, Bob Ma, do you care to answer either of those about um, like the motive and the anger? Do you know where that stemmed from? Yeah, I, and let me know. If the, By the way, you're a million times better. Thank oh, God. Oh, good. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. 
I appreciate you letting me move. Um, so, Doctor, in terms of the psychology and the, the psychiatrist that, that interviewed Gacy, in terms of the relationship between his father and himself was abusive. Um, you know, he often said, as you noted, that like his father would go down into the basement when he'd get home from work, drink heavily and come up. And like Gacy termed it, that he was like Jekyll and Hyde. He'd come up, he'd be violent, uh, you know, physically, uh, emotionally, verbally uh, abusive to John in every single way. You know, there was a, an occasion where, where uh, John's mother had found a pair of her underpants uh, under uh, the front porch of the, the house. And uh, John's father made him wear the underwear in order to shame him. You know, he was always questioning his manhood. And then you look at the other things in terms of the, in terms of sexual abuse, because my father really kind of dove into that aspect of it with with John and and Gacy didn't really have any memory of him being sexually abused himself as a young man. You know, he had a couple of occurrences that sounded off. Like I think if if it you know something would have happened that was similar to one of my kids, I'd be pretty upset about it. But it didn't. It didn't appear to be like an ongoing, full blown, uh, so uh, sexual molestation type situation. It was like a coach that was coming over to the house, and he had put John's head in his lap. Uh, but there, like, nothing, like there, there was no actual touching that that took place. But John, I'd always stuck with them, and he had a couple of head injuries. Um, you know, and I, I know there's been studies done that have tried to to look at a lot of serial killers had some kind of serious head trauma. Gacy did have a couple of relatively serious head injuries uh, when he was young. In, in terms of what turned him, it's hard to know, you, you know, and back when they were, and I forget what, uh, what version of the DSM they were at at that point, but when Dr. Rappaport, who was the psychiatrist that they had hired uh, to try to evaluate Gacy back then, you know, he's like, he doesn't fit into any of them, like neatly. And, uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know, it was a really tough case in that sense because they just couldn't, they couldn't quantify him uh, into any, any particular category as to what was wrong with them. You know, he was just, he had a diseased mind and uh, ultimately, you know, and that's a tough sell to a jury, um, you know, and then, when you get to the, the and what was the second question? So, I mean, ultimately, we don't know, you, you know, I mean, that that's always the argument. Would it have been helpful to have studied him if he was in a in a mental facility? Maybe, maybe if he's going to be forthcoming. But a lot of these guys are never forthcoming in terms of, you know, when they're being interviewed. I mean, Ed Kemper seems about, you know, to be one of the more forthcoming serial killers in terms of kind of opening up and, and letting them delve into his mind as much as they can. But, you know, with Gacy, man, he, he was just all the way to the end. You know, he just, he, he never, he never gave up the game, you know. Look at this, the inimitable Gary Bricado. Dr. Gar Gary Bricado who studies serial killers with Ann Burgess. Hi, Anna, Joel, and Bob. Just popping on between clients tonight. When the crawl space ran out of room, Gacy did start hurtling bodies off a bridge into water. There could easily have been more. A quick John Wayne story here. 
um, I was whining to my mom to no one's surprise. This is about three, four years ago. And she said, I always wanted to have the strong, silent type like John Wayne as a son. And literally the next day I was in some like five and dime store for lack of a better description, even though they don't exist anymore. And sitting on the shelf was a John Wayne lighter and it sits in my uh, medicine cabinet. So every time I open that medicine cabinet, I see a picture of John Wayne and I say, I'm nothing like him, but the dude. Like him. <laughs> the dude. <laughs> um, but I, I tried, um, we've got to get to this audio too. So let me, let me sure. look at this um, private chat. So the first piece of audio we have is just titled, um, long clip for the sizzle. Should we play that one, Bob, or should we skip to number two? Uh, yeah, do, I mean, they're all pretty fascinating, man. Um, um do, let's do go to, um, how about the, let's go to number two, Mario. Do you feel that their deaths were their fault? Hang on one sec, Space Coast. Um, wh what is this? Do you feel that their deaths were their fault? What is this about? So at this point, my father, and Sam both understood because what had happened is Gacy had given five confessions in the first 30 hours that he was in custody to start spilling his guts in five different occasions, ranging from, you know, an hour to a couple hours, all of them without counsel in the room. So at that point, once he starts confessing to, to the killings, Sam and my father realized, look, our, our only defense here is going to have to be the insanity defense. So what you're hearing here is my father starts by, by going through all the confessions. He's got the written confessions uh, in front of him, and he's, he's grilling John to try to get answers in order to try to get an understanding of his mindset. He, he's really trying to answer the question that, that Dr. Burgess had is, why? Like, why are you broken? What What is wrong with you? You know, and, and he gets so much pushback and resistance from Gacy. Gacy starts saying, oh, well, you know, I don't remember anything. And my father's like, well, you know, I, I can understand that you're saying you don't remember. He's like, you know, I was on a ton of Valium when they first got me, Bob. I had taken like 160 milligrams of Valium. And my dad, you know, comes back and he says, well, OK, I, I understand that, John, maybe for the first three confessions. But 29 hours later, you're no longer under the influence of Valium, you know, at that point. So what is your excuse for that? Because Gacy was saying that he had forgotten everything that he had told the police. So it was incredibly frustrating. So what you're going to hear here is my father going back and forth with Gacy, just probing, trying to draw out information from him any way that he can. Play it, Space Coast. You're going to see a black hole, but you're going to hear the audio. Here we go. Willingly understandingly and knowingly what was going on. Do you feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There is not one of them that didn't, didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Everybody came to my house willingly, understandingly, and knowingly what was going on feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There's not one of them that didn't, didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Everybody came to my house willingly, understandingly, and knowingly what was going on. Oh, feel right. that I their deaths were their Space fault. Coast, I think we could drop that because I think that's playing on a loop now. Um, 
Ann Burgess, to you, since I, I'm sure you've heard bits and pieces of this, but um, what do you make of that? He's basically being asked, whose fault is this? And, and John Wayne Gacy, without even missing a beat, is saying it's the fault of his, of his own victims. Yeah, well, that's so typical of him. He never took responsibility for any of this, except those early confessions, and then he immediately goes into denial. But he can blame, though, that, that was kind of his whole perception is that these kids, um, you know, they either got themselves into difficulty and then he uses his clown tricks of the rope trick and the handcuffs and all of that to play out something that is important to him. That's what hasn't been, in, in my mind, hasn't been adequately looked at is, is what was that all symbolizing? Uh, the the it goes back to the clown. It goes back to the disguise and and being able to do things that he he think and he does get away with it. He gets away with a lot of it. I think you you initially said the very first 1967 charge is he gets sentenced for 10 years and he only serves 18 months. Now how did that happen? Certainly something uh, played the system. Yeah, so, that was a sodomy charge. I think it was 68 and. Um... He only spent, like you said, 18 months behind bars. And uh, if he served more, I'm sure obviously a lot of lives would have been saved. Uh, we're going to obviously get to Bob to get his take on the audio we just heard. But this one, too, and from Christine R., typical serial killer. He met Rosalind Carter in hidden plain sight. Uh, wasn't he religious or well-known in the Polish community? Those poor young men, tragic. There is a photo of him with Rosalind Carter. Yeah. Is that typical that these serial killers... Basically, I mean, we know Dennis Rader. He was a church president. Sure. Well, wasn't Gacy, he was um, supposed to be head of security for something that was coming up, and that's how it all got arranged so that he was able to get that close to Rosalind Carter. And I think that just puts the these um, parallel and puts him in, in close contact with such power uh, as she was and then used it to his advantage. I think that photo has been used many, many times. Uh, here's another comment. And I, this is something I was thinking. So I'm glad Gary Bricado is saying this out loud. I think Gacy loathed his own homosexuality. Remember his dad was calling him a queer uh, and punished himself through other men, as we noted in the new evil. That's their book, the new evil. Uh, sometimes he read Bible passages while victims died in the garot. Uh, that is very eerie. Bob, uh, that, audio we just heard about him blaming the victims uh which what do you and your dad have to say about that i'd love to uh hear everything your dad had to say about this case but what's your take yeah no i mean it was it was par for the course for gacy i mean he had absolutely no remorse for anything that he ever did ever uh and you know when my father said it was chilling it's chilling and you know the, the fact of the matter is is that he just never and to Gary's comment, uh, that was always what my belief was as well. Like it, it, it you know, I, I felt that he had a, a true loathing of the fact that he was homosexual that was built and instilled in him by his father because of his loathing of homosexuality. And that ultimately that, that the way that he was cleansing uh, the feelings that he was having after he'd engaged in sexual uh, encounters with these young guys is to kill them. Um, you know, and, and then when I'm listening to the tapes, uh, which by the way, if you want to hear a ton of the tapes, 
you, you should listen to my first season of Gacy, and that includes you, Gary, and Dr. Burgess. If you're interested in Gacy, it's the best thing that's ever been done in Gacy. I'm yeah, and Bob, just tell us, where where does everyone find it? Anywhere, anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, uh, Spotify. Wait, but it's under, the, it's under the Defense Diaries. Yeah, uh, Defense Diaries is the podcast. Our first season was the Gacy Tapes. I play probably about 12 hours of this, but it's it's woven in with interviews of all the you know, the cops that are still alive. I got the lead prosecutor, Bill Kunkel, to perform his entire closing argument. My dad does his opening uh, opening state. It's unbelievable. It's the best thing that's ever been done on Gacy, ever. And it's the most thorough. So, it, it, like, in, it, at some point when it gets out to the world at large, people are going to realize it. But, Doctor, you And this it. is, and, and Bob, just to be clear, this is different than uh, the, the tapes we hear on Netflix, correct? Uh, th- those are Karen Conti. No one has ever heard these tapes before, ever. The you hear dad, that, everybody? Have, did you hear that, everybody? Make sure you listen to the first season of Defense Diaries. This isn't Netflix stuff. This is the real thing. Oh, right? yeah. That was Karen Conti. That, like, when you hear a woman speaking on those tapes, you know it's not his trial lawyers because his trial lawyers were Sam Amaranti and my father. So, you know, Berlinger pawned them off as if they were his own, but, uh, or that they were my tapes, which I had negotiated for nine months and I couldn't make a deal with Berlinger. That was actually my pitch to him, uh, but he ran with it after the fact. But I wouldn't have done the pod had I licensed the tape. So, was a blessing in disguise. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it's like everything about him, when you're talking about the Rosalind Carter thing, I mean, this guy, and, and he wasn't even hiding in plain sight. Like this guy had picked up, it, what it was was indifference of the Chicago police. Like he, he just, because a lot of these kids that would come, I think there were probably four different, aggravated battery charges that had been filed against him between 72 and 78 where Chicago PD would just go and they'd talk to him and he'd say, Oh no, well, you know, he's, he's my boyfriend or we just had a little bit of a tiff. And this is like in 72, 73, 74, the entire uh, like climate in terms of homosexuality and, and like gay people back then was infinitely different than it was now they were completely indifferent as to anything that went on that that had anything to do with homosexuality back then they just didn't care like when i'm interviewing the cops 35 40 years later they're telling me the same thing and they're admitting it like we just didn't care it's like it was a gay fight we didn't care about it it didn't matter to us it was like a couple of guys getting in fights you know and they're gay like we it's just like it was disgusting the way that they treated it back then and Ultimately, that resulted in Gacy feeling like he was bulletproof. So what Dr. Dr. Ann was saying in terms of it was a combination of all those things. When he finally divorces Carol in 1976, that is when he ramps it up because he has got that that graveyard where it's so easy for him to dispose of the bodies up until. And like Gary said, it's true. He ran out of room. He had 27 in the crawl and he had buried two on the property proper. And then he started dumping them in the Desplaines River up until he's basically stopped with Rob Peast, you know, and, and our thing is, is that we believe there's more. Like, aside from the Miami and Elston property, we've got three other locations that we have not disclosed that we believe that Bob, we're going to- Bob, if you had to put a number on it, how many more victims do you think there are? I, he gave a number to uh, Rafael Tovar, who we interviewed, of 45. Like he said, 45 is a good number is what he said. Now, now Rafael Tovar 
was a Desplaines cop. He's one of the cops investigating the case. Great storyteller. Like a great storyteller. Like he had told the stories many, many times. So, I, you know, I'm not saying that, that he's making anything up, but I take everything with a grain of salt. But in terms of just factually trying to put together, you know, with common sense, the fact that he goes this three years and they think he's dormant and he has access to this property. Remember, Gacy was a contractor and, and his typical his typical thing was that he was he was rehabbing uh, pharmacies like and he was going all over the country or really all over the Midwest, Kansas City. He was in uh, Michigan. He was in Wisconsin all the time. He had a property that he had access to that he went up to the Wisconsin property all the time. None of these places were ever searched. None of them. And that's what I'm saying in terms of there was no investigation that was done into anything else that he may have done beyond what they found. They had their hands full in terms of just trying to identify those kids. Remember, they went to trial with, I think it was 14 of the kids still unidentified. You know, that they went in it with John Doe's because back then, obviously, we didn't have DNA. They were basically doing it on dental, you know, dental records, medical records. And if the kids had any kind of uh, particular type of jewelry or belt buckle or something significant that they could identify or the family could identify the kid. And then again, you had Gacy burying kids on top of other kids. So bones were getting mixed up. You know, it's like build. There's so much with it that. It, it requires more investigation, which is exactly what Bill Dorsch and I are going to do. Wow. Chicago police doesn't want to do it. Cook County police doesn't want to do it. We want to do it. We want to do it for the victims to get their names back. And we want to do it so that, that these families can have closure because we believe there's more. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, at the time uh, of his arrest or uh, at the trial, I should say, he was convicted on 33 counts of murder, which was the most um Ever at that time, and um, I, I don't know you how to phrase this question because a lot of people say, you know, is he the most notorious? But in terms of the pantheon of serial killers, where does John Wayne Gacy sit? Um, you know, he's got to be at the very top of the most notorious serial killers, correct? He's, I would certainly say he's at the very, a very top. There have been some a little later. I think Samuel Little had had more. Um, that they were able, again, you have to look at how many can they actually verify um, versus how many they say they have. But I think the, the important thing is, what, why do you think he doesn't admit or in, uh, suggest that he has more, vic more victims? Because he, as far as we know, he never does say except there could be. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question. My father asked him, and, and I don't know if we have that clip. I think we might have it, Joel. And What's that one called? Do you know? Uh, um, let me see. Here. Uh, Gacy could, lists five. Um, it, could, it could be that. Uh, do you feel that was the right? It, it might have been the sizzle. but it, let's, let's, let's play the sizzle. I want to play that. Let's get through some of the sound. Uh, Space Coast, play clip number one. How did you feel the next morning when you woke up and you found uh, Gadsden dead? What was your initial emotional response? Just to tone down the crawl space. Get rid of him. Did you question yourself as to why it was done? 
Nope. Do you ever remember feeling remorse for any of this? What was your most overwhelming feeling? Fear? Remorse? Uh, you want to get rid of it and, and put it out of your mind, cover it up? Even once you bury somebody, it was already gone. There was, there was no feeling. Bob and Peg, for the most part, you know, even, even like today, I don't, I don't believe I killed anybody. But yet I know I did. Or I took part in it. When you found the body the next morning, did you ever think, well, Jesus, there's already three down there, or, or there's already seven down there? Did you ever, do you have, oh, a, number? have a count in your mind? No. Did you ever think when you were going out at night that possibly you'd end up with another body the next morning? Did you ever think about that? When you're going out, say like you'll leave the house and have a few drinks somewhere? Well, yeah, in, the, in, this, in this last year here, I kept telling myself that i got to keep myself busy, 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 so that I don't have time to go down by the park. Stay away from down there. Don't go down by the lake. Did you ever try to figure out in your own mind uh, what was happening to you? Because you know, like my own in my own neighborhood, or even along the streets, or uh, like Montrose or, or Lawrence or anything, or even anywhere in Norwich, if I seen hitchhikers or that, I would not pick up nobody around my house. I would not pick up nobody in my own neighborhood. Did you ever, during the course of your days, did you think about this? Did you think about the bodies under your house? Did you think about what you probably had done, even though you didn't remember it specifically? Was it on your mind a lot? During the day, none of it was. I mean, it was one you know, the only <laughs> all right. Once, once the burial was done, there was, there was no number count. There was no nothing in my mind. Did you ever reflect back? I mean, all this was going on. Mind. What? How did you feel when you knew there were bodies under there? I'm trying to figure how out. How do you feel about something that you don't do? How can I have any feelings? about that. Once they were the ground, they weren't my problem. Uh, that is uh, creepy to say the least. I almost hit a deer up in Canada this vacation. I'm still thinking about that deer that I basically missed by a hair and uh, kids thought it was exciting. I didn't. Um, <laughs> and it happened while we were talking about deer crossings of all things. But um, Dr. Ann Burgess, this guy is, you know, talking about them like, um, I don't know, like they're domino games like like it's like it's a game like uh he right. just he has no absolutely no emotion i mean apps th the least amount of emotion possible how is that possible right well that's that's the whole point that's what he is <laughs> that he doesn't think of anything is nothing in his head uh and as long as he says he didn't do it he doesn't have to do anything my my question is many of the serial killers we looked at in in our study had we're able to talk about the thoughts they had, the fantasies, if you will. Does he ever admit to any fantasies? I've never heard that he has. And it sounds like the interview, he they really tried to get at that very well, but he, he just keeps um, avoiding it and denying it. And that's that's your psychopath. Yeah. My my dad grills him, doctor. No, like, good, like, you yeah. need to listen to the, the podcast because you're going to find it fascinating because that's that's the 15 hours of my father going at him, trying to get into his mind. Yeah. And yeah. and again, it's, it's Gacy with the constant pushback, you know, and there's these 
some of these interactions where my father's like, you know, if you're getting angry with me, John, I don't care. You know, like I like I'm not afraid. I, and if you've tried to formulate what you think our defense is on your behalf, you, you're wrong. You're not helping yourself. If you think that you're helping yourself by answering the questions the way that you're answering them, you're incorrect. Like the the pushback on it, just uh, there's never been tapes like this where you're hearing an attorney, the defense attorney, preparing the, the like right. the guy for trial, and he just Gacy like he'll slip up occasionally. You know, because the 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 five that he would talk about were the five that he admitted to to the cops, and then he would talk about and, and he he was adamant that he wasn't gay. He said, "I like any time that anyone called him gay, he or homosexual." He said, "No, no, I, I'm bisexual. That's like don't call me homosexual." I'm. He's like I, and he and he has this conversation. He's like, "I like I would never kiss a man. Like to me, that's disgusting." But he's like this this sexual act. He's like he's like I never feel affection for a man. He's like it's it's just pure sex. That's what it is for me. Yeah. And you know it, it's like trying to get into his mind where it's it's just a steel trap. And he like what makes him the scariest of all was you you have BTK you have you have the guys that were kind of hiding in plain sight. Gacy was open and notorious like he was the democratic precinct captain that's how he yeah. swung the thing with carolyn or uh with, with uh, rosalind carter you know right. like if the cops had if the, the you know secret service had done their job they would have seen that he had a felony charge he should never have gotten that pass yet he schmoozed his way in because that's what he did like he was the equivalent to like norm on cheers for our older viewers out there who may, may remember what cheers was like anytime Gacy walked up, I'm John, you know, it's like, he was a very affable guy. It's well known that he had the big parties with all the big wigs from around the area. The third district lawyers, judges would all come over to the house. He'd have parties over his graveyard. That was his home, you know, during 4th of July, where it was like a 1776 theme party where they're all dressed up with powdered wigs. The guy just, was the scariest apex predator I've ever seen because he just did not care. Like, yeah. it, like it had zero effect on him in, in a way that it never resonated with him ever. Even till the point where he's like the day before he's getting executed, it never, it never dawns on him. The horror that he's befallen thousands of people because you can't just think about the victims themselves you have to think about the the reach of every victim and their families and their loved ones and their friends and their acquaintances all those those lost souls and, and the damage that he did and the guy just could care less yeah um, bob ned, ned smith wants to know if uh gacy agreed to be taped and i want to know what did your dad kind of say to you behind closed doors about trying to work on a defense for this guy. It must've been impossible. Cause he kept like, you know, hitting, uh, I, yeah, Ned, it was, uh, he did agree to tape. Of course. I mean, it, it, like they, we're talking an old school, you know, rectangular push button tape recorder. The sound like on this, the sound is rough. Cause these were 40 year old cassette tapes. They sound amazing compared to what they originally sounded like as my producer, Darren Wood, spent hundreds of hours cleaning those tapes. Like the second, the first clip we played, played sounded better than the second clip because that second clip came from a tape that was, it's, 
It's our dreaded tape. It's the February 3rd tape where the sound is brutal. Uh, but the, the real question I think that Nat is asking is, how are we playing it? Because privilege survives death. Attorney-client privilege survives death. And, and the answer is that Gacy waived privilege uh, in terms of that's how he thought Sam and my father were going to get paid for the case. Because remember, they were private private attorneys. Uh, they weren't they weren't uh, public defenders. So Gacy thought they were going to get a book or a movie deal. And then that's how they were going to get paid their fees. So he waived privilege all the way back then. Like, I mean, I he wasn't my client. I always could have played the tapes, but I was never going to jam my father up <laughs> playing the tapes. So I, Bob, I, you got these tapes as I read that you got them as a gift for your 21st birthday. Is that right? Yeah. So my dad <laughs> gave me these tapes. It's it's a, a shoebox. Like, it, like true, absolutely true story. I, I To my 21st birthday, there was a Mexican spot. We always used to have all of our parties called La Maada. Got a bunch of my friends, family there. He gives me this box. And the way the story goes is I was hoping, I was driving around in a beater, like a AMC Matador. Uh, that was just the biggest box that you could imagine rusted ugliest car ever made and i was really hoping that he got me a car i get this by and it appears to be a shoebox i open it up i'm like oh maybe there's car keys in there i open it up and there's tapes i'm like oh audio tapes i'm like thanks man close the lid and i see he's just scrawled gacy tapes on there he takes me aside he said look these are my legacy you know these are all my taped interviews with gacy they're one of a kind they're historic no one's ever heard them uh, no one's got copies of them. They've never been out there. You know, maybe someday you'll figure out something to do with them. Took me 30 years and I figured out something to do with them. And I, like to me, they are historic. They're a hideous, ugly part of our history as a country, but they're historic nonetheless. And I felt that the public deserved to hear them because they're it's part of the, dis, you know, part of the disturbing fabric of our country. And, you know, I, to me, they're they're valuable. I think there's value. Like, I love watching dr ann's face when she's listening to the clips yeah. like, by the me, way i think uh you might be sitting on a gold mine here bob mata jr uh yeah. these probably are worth a ton of money but um i know that's right. not your interest in all this but let's uh space coast let's go to number three here it's called gacy list five since we have you and ann i want to get through as many of these as we can so uh space coast number five number three i'm sorry first of all i remember that there was one in 72 i remember Brunkovich was in 74 I think Nick and Dyke and uh, Gonsick, I don't know which two, which one came first or second. I think that they were in 76 and 77. And Pete's is number 78. Hmm. Uh, so there, uh, Bob, it appears that he is just listing five victims. Um, Ann knows this better than I, but is, is that all he was really admitting to at that point? Yeah. Yeah, he, so... The way that Gacy played this is when he he came in and gave the multiple confessions, ultimately he named five. He named five that he could recall their names and the dates. Now, the reality is that Gacy had a, the memory of an elephant. It was like a steel trap. Like this guy would like I, I'm not kidding. Like this guy would talk about a carpet store that he that he had gone to one time and would give my father the address like from six years prior. I mean, the guy, the guy didn't forget anything, you know I mean? Like the concept that it's, it's so like, it's so irreconcilable between the concept that this man can remember every minute detail about the most insignificant thing, but can't remember 
killing kids. You, you know, I mean, there, there's no way to reconcile those two things ever, which drove my father nuts. You know, it just drove him nuts. Because remember, the, the thing about the insanity defense is that it's the toughest defense on the planet. And, and I'm sure that the doctor will agree with me because what you're, you're tasked with is trying to convince 12 people that somebody should not be held responsible for their heinous acts because they weren't able to control them themselves, that they weren't able to comport their behavior to the requirements of the law, which is in Illinois, that's what the insanity defense was. You know, that there, there were, it was two pronged. And, and, you know, the, the thing for my father is that this was a compulsion for Gacy. Gacy could not control, like when it got to, to the kill moment, there was no premeditation in terms of him doing the act itself. Was there premeditation of him going out to Bug House Square and getting the kids and, and having sex with them? Yes, of course. But but the argument was that when it came down to that point, like where, where Gary was talking about, like where something in him was broken. And if, if, and if it was his uh, just absolute repulsion to the fact that he had just committed a homosexual act in his mind and that the only way that he could cleanse himself was to, to kill his victim, dump him in the crawl space and bury it, literally burying his problems, maybe i i don't know but you know at the end of the day when you're when you're trying to to get into this guy's brain you know again this the insanity defense by operation of law means that you've admitted to committing the crimes so it didn't matter if gacy had only admitted to five of them when they decided to move forward with the insanity defense it meant that he was culpable for all 33 because that, that, that you understand what i'm saying the operation of law says Okay, I did it, but I'm not guilty because I couldn't control my behavior. I like I'm innocent by reason of insanity. So I'm admitting that I did those things, but I'm but I have to be found not guilty because my mind was so diseased that I wasn't able to control myself. And trying to sell that to 12 jurors, 12 people from Rockford, Illinois, who are sitting there listening to victim after victim after victim and bill kunkel brought in uh the lead prosecutor like literally brought in the frame of the crawl space and mm -hmm. stuck it in the middle of the courtroom and he had a cork board that he had all the victims that they knew and the facial recreations that they were able to do and pictures of the ones that they were able to identify he'd pull them off the board one by one and throw them into the crawl space you mm -hmm. know it was like devastating you know, they're, they're, I don't care. In my father's opening statement was so eloquent. It's one of the most beautiful things that I've ever heard said in terms of trying to explain the insanity defense and, and trying to get lay people to understand that this man's mind was so diseased that he couldn't control what he was doing. But like to get people off an eye for an eye when he's got 30, 33 victims, it ain't happening. You know, like people are just not willing to go there. That's why it's the toughest defense. Did Even, your dad feel like he lost, Bob? No, my father felt like he did his job. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like th this wasn't this wasn't a thing where, you know, like the the axiom is true. There was no bringing back the victims. Killing Va like killing Gacy wasn't going to ultimately allow for any of these young men to walk back through the doors of their homes. They were gone. You know, it's that argument is it does 
killing him serve any other purpose than than you know mere revenge probably not you know but that's how we choose in some states to, to punish people you know and and like it's a concept that a lot of people are on board with you know look I'm not a I'm not a death penalty guy, but it's not because of a morality play. I just happen to think that spending your life in a cage is the worst thing that you could do to anybody. And I'm talking about I don't care if you get to watch TV two hours a day, never being able to do anything that all of us take for granted in our daily lives. You know, hugging your kids, kissing your wife, putting your feet in the ocean, taking a swim, going on anything. Anything that we may consider mundane, it's all over and you're in a box for the rest of your life. If you want to punish somebody, that's how you do it for the rest of their life with no hope of ever getting out to me. But, you know, it's a tough sell. Some people, you know, when when somebody does something like this, kills 33 young men, a lot of people like you got to go down. And I have to admit, like he was the poster boy for the death penalty. (laughs) You know, if there was ever to be somebody that we were probably better off that he was just ridded off the earth it was probably yacy you know so by the way someone bob asked earlier if your dad was able to speak to him uh, prior to the execution which was may 10th 1994 yeah so uh my father was invited to go view the execution he declined him and sam amaranti went up to a bar in uh norwood park obviously the town where, where gacy was and they they watched it on tv oddly enough uh, Gacy was executed shortly after midnight, which actually turned out to be my father's birthday, which is May 11th. So it was wow. it was weird in a lot of different ways. It, you know, it's uh, so, yeah, it, like my father, that's what my father felt like is it is a defense attorney when your client gets executed. That's when he felt like he didn't do his job, you know, mm-hmm. like when they put one of your clients to death, you know, and, and it was never that Gacy was innocent. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when I moved back to Chicago in like 1980, like I was lucky to not be living in Chicago when my dad was handling that case. Cause I would have been, as a kid, I would have been abused massively at school, you know, and, and I can hold my own, but still it would have been brutal, you know, just because it was, it was front page news every day, especially in Chicago. It was the news, the paper, everyone knew, even when I came back, kids knew still. And, you know, it's like that, you know, it was just such a weird part of my life for such a long time. I found doing the Gacy tape so cathartic. Like when I finished, and it's 36 episodes, Joel. It's like no other, like there's no other podcast out there like it, dude. It's like, like I wept, like I openly wept. Like when I, when I said the last words of the last episode of that thing, man, it was like, and I didn't even realize it was there. Like this weird weight that I had from that case, just being, Cause it was just a part of my life in a weird way. I didn't defend the guy, but it was just always there. You, yeah, you know? It's literally uh, from your childhood. And it was literally your um, most, you know, kids are getting a drink when they're 21. You're getting the Gacy tape. So uh, there you go. Um, and this question uh, came up a few times. It's, it, it's the old question with serial killers. Uh, his behavior, was it more nature versus nurture? Is there any way to tell? Well, you, you try to tell by looking at their background and how dysfunctional uh, the growing up period was, but it doesn't look like it was that dis. I mean, it certainly was dysfunctional if you want to look at the father's abuse and the mother's more passive approach, but that isn't unusual, wouldn't necessarily be unusual for back in, in those days. So 
I want, I'd like to know more about when does he have his first encounter with death? Because he does remember, and when he's out in Las Vegas, he gets, he stays in this mortuary or something like that, not necessarily sleeping in the coffins with the victims. He makes that very clear, but he's, he's there and, and you certainly have the smell and, and so forth. It's very different. So I, I'd like to know if there was any history there of losing someone important to him. The other question is, um, how do you think he saw your father? Because um, as I listen to the tapes, your father is being very, uh, very strong, very aggressive, if you will, asking the questions. And you really, it's the first time I've heard Gacy be so, um, he's, he, he's not strong. He's, uh, I've certainly heard him on tapes in different ways. So is, is he reminding him of someone, uh, your father? Uh, is this the father he didn't have, he should have had, et cetera, that kind of thing? Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating insight. Um, so it would it was interesting. What was really interesting is that my father would go to, I mean, he was housed at Cermak Memorial, which was the mental facility, the mental wing of the Cook County Jail. So, and, and like he sat in there like a king, like he had cigars, you know, just being the giant piece of shit pardon my friends that Gacy was you know but like the tapes in terms of the interviews always aside from the first interview when Sam and my father were there together every one of the tapes that I have is my father alone with Gacy because my father and Sam were two very different attorneys my father's brilliant and I'm not saying that Sam's not but my dad is and like in terms of his back and forth with Gacy was unbelievable. Like all the tapes are like that. And so where I got the insight into what you're asking about is I have a few other tapes where it's Sam in there with Gacy and they would talk about nuts and bolts. Like I have a tape where Sam's talking about the book and movie deal and how he's going to get paid. And he's like, talk about the sex, John, what about the sex, John? You know, and my dad's trying to like dive into the, the nuts and the bolts of the insanity defense. And you know, like Gacy says, he's like, well, Bob's a smart lawyer. You know, Bob's a really smart lawyer. He's he's a really good lawyer. You know, so Gacy got the sense that in, in when you listen to this tape, when they're destroying Gacy's house by way of necessity. So they had filed a motion in order to try to preserve it because Gacy sitting in that in that cell, so to speak, at Cermak Memorial had every belief that he was going to be walking out of there one day completely like he completely believed that he was going to get out of prison or that he was going to get out of whatever mental facility they put him in. He thought he was going to hoodwink him. He's like, you know, when I get out, I'm probably going to end up, you know, kind of falling off the map a little bit. You know, I'm not going to be like how I was before while I was all out in the public. I'll probably pick up another trade because I was really good at everything. You know, I could do a little bit of everything. Like the guy was just so warped, you know, that mm. I think he saw my dad as, as the vessel. Like if there was going to be the way that he was going to get away with this out of the two lawyers that were handling the case, I think he saw my father as the vessel as to his way out of it. Yeah. You know, and it was like, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a strange thing. And, you know, cause like Joel to kind of go back, like going into my podcast, I was hoping that, you know, I'd be able to get my dad on there constantly, you know, cause conceptually I didn't know how to do it. I had the tapes. I didn't just want to, throw the tapes on 
and just play the tapes and then talk about it, like kind of what we're doing tonight, which would have been moderately interesting for an episode or two. So I decided to get the entire case file. I went and, and got the entire the entire trial transcript. It took my wife and I forever to wow. scan the entire transcript. And I dug into the whole case, like the entire thing. I started and Bob digging. Bob's wife's a lawyer too. She is. And and when, so we like I'm digging up every single person that will will interview with me. So I interviewed every single cop that was still alive. Wow. And like, you know, what we uncovered, and I'm not gonna give a spoiler on it. Everyone should listen to it because if you know anything about Gacy and you think that you know that case, you don't. Because what we uncovered about that photo receipt, which was the most famous piece of property or evidence in the case, which is ultimately the piece of evidence that got them the second warrant to get into that house when they found the bodies, what we uncovered about it is unbelievable. It's like it, it blew. Like when it happened, I was like sitting there. I literally was picking my skull up off the table. I was like, oh my God, I put my skull back together. It you guys was better listen to first season of Defense Diaries, the Gacy Tapes. I want to get to a little bit more. A um, couple questions about your dad, Bob, uh, from Cleveland Rocks. Bob, when you were a kid, did you notice how your dad was affected, if at all, listening to all of this as part of his job? That's one. And then uh, did Gacy have any lasting effects on your dad? So when it was happening, and it's it's kind of a like a like a misnomer about defense attorneys like like you know I've I've handled some pretty horrific cases the Anthony Garcia thing out of Omaha you know he was ultimately convicted of murdering four people he was a doctor you know and, and when you sit in the room with these guys you know you don't you don't feel fear you know it's like it you, like it's just you just don't at least I didn't. And I did, and, and Allison didn't, you know, like when we were trying the case, my dad never felt fear because you're in there doing a job. And, and when you're so immersed in a case like this, and when you have a case like this, everything else falls to the wayside. There is no other case other than the, this case. So it was his every waking moment. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they were quasi celebrities at that point. You know, like if the internet existed then, like it did now, I mean, the guy would have been like a star, you, you know, but it was like, so that he had these two kind of competing things where, you know, all of the people in his profession knew of them and, and were like, wow, what a case, what a case, what a case. So he, he was getting plaudits from the legal world, getting hate from the public because everybody always imputes the horrid acts of the actor onto their attorneys. It's one of the tough things about being a defense attorney. And, you know, but he knew that he had a job to do. And my, my father was amazing at being able to car, uh, compartmentalize, you know, his job away from, you know, the morality of of what's going on in his mind I mean, and, and as a criminal defense attorney you have to be able to do that you know and, and gacy was unusual because of the fact that it was a situation where you know that your client did it you know a lot of times like the first thing my father told me coming out of law school and knew that i was going to be a criminal defense attorney he's like i never never asked your client if they did it it's irrelevant to your job and you know frankly for two reasons. One, I could never put him on the stand if he told me something different and I came up with an alternate defense. But more importantly, in order for me to be able to look myself in the mirror, put my morality in check, you know, if, if, if I'm asking somebody, especially if I'm defending somebody who has been, you know, uh, accused of doing some pretty horrific things, it, it's a tough gig hearing them admit to it and then 
plunging, plunging forward of the defense. I, I don't need to hear it. What I need to do is make sure that the cops did their jobs properly, that the prosecutor is doing their job properly, that my client understands his rights, and that my client's getting a fair trial. And if I do all those things, I've done my job properly, because ultimately, at the end of the day, in this elusive search for justice that we have, you know, you try to do the best you can within the parameters of the system, and, and, and you hope for everybody's sake, the victim's and the accused that you get the right guy. And the only way that you can do that is by testing the evidence at trial. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's the way I go about it. Like, like, like bad guys don't get away that often. You know, it's just, it's, it's just facts. And in most cases don't go to trial. You know, we all deal in the worlds of trials. So I think that most true crime fans think that everything goes to trial. 98% of stuff is pled out. That's, that's reality. So, you know, but yeah, like my father definitely, it stuck with them. He said the case, like his, his famous line was, he did two things. He blamed me because I said, yeah, dad, call Sam when I was 10. He's like, yeah, I blame you. And he said it ruined his life. It ruined his career, you know? So like those two things, he kind of walked that back when I finally interviewed him. Like, but after hearing it for 40 years, he's like, yeah, the case destroyed my life. You know, because with all these guys, it's just it's one of those cases because it never dies because of mm -hmm. its historic value. It just never goes away. And he know? never wrote a book or anything. He never. No, that that was that was the uh, the end of the beautiful uh, friendship of Sam and my father. Sam went out and, and hired a, a like mm -hmm. a, a, a ghostwriter to write Defending a Monster, which is Amaranti's book and didn't tell my dad that he had done it. Uh, until like four chapters in and he's like so my dad like was furious mm. he's like, this, this writer sucks like you know mm. it's like this is our one chance to tell the story because my concept for that book is give the perspective of defending that guy like it doesn't need to be another Gacy biography like my podcast has very little to do with Gacy and has everything to do with the victims. Like the one thing I didn't know anything about the Gacy case were the victims. They knew nothing. I dug in so hard trying to figure out who these kids were, trying to, to give them life in terms of memorializing them. And I dug into the investigation, the trial, and the victims. And of course, I played the tapes, but like it's like I didn't do what everybody else has done, giving the whole Gacy biography thing. There's plenty of material out there for y'all to watch. If, if you're coming to, if you're like, Gacy's not my thing, or like, they get, it's not, it's none of what you think it's going to be. It's just Let's, uh, I want to try to get to two more quick clips here. Number four, Space Coast, play number four. It's called To Bury People. How did you I would think that, you know, Rocky had done that before. Uh, before, uh, Rocky had done it before his big time. For the purpose of trial? Yeah. And you know, I don't know who, who came up with that idea that it was trial. Because I don't know if it came out in conversation. Or, or if it was because of my uncle asking what we were digging for down there. Do you think it's possible that the digging was simply to bury people? So they're talking in um, pretty openly about burying people. I was reading somewhere in this crawl space. It was only like 
two feet um, yeah. ceiling height. So he had to basically get on his knees to dig. Sure. Um, again, it's just the things that horror movies are made of. But what do you make of that uh, exchange there? Well, uh, well, there is an exchange. So who's who's digging? Cram and Rossi. Yeah, Cram and Rod, the two young guys. That I was talking. So right. this goes all the way back to, to Joel's very first question when, when he was talking about the accomplices. Yeah. Cram yeah. and yeah. Rossi were two young guys that were employees that worked for Gacy yeah. that uh, were down there. And their story was they were they were digging under the presumption that they were they were uh, digging the trenches to put in water, water drainage oh, tiles. Yeah. That's what they allege. Now, I, of course, think that they both were complicit completely so is your understanding that they would dig for every victim or some i thought were put in multiple victims? yeah no they would I dig they would dig a long, yeah they would dig a long trench sure so, but yeah. gacy would tell them like so he had a little, little he'd draw a little diagram so he would tell them exactly where to dig the trench because gacy right. knew where all the trenches were like I said, Gacy never forgot anything. I know. You no, know, yeah. like, like he just never forgot it. He knew where every single when Gacy in his, I think it was his third, third confession. He that's when he draws the little cross space, the cross space map. So for the guy who can't remember anything, right, he can't remember right. killing all these guys. But let me draw you this map of the cross map, space right. where every single, every single body's going to be. So yeah, no, like he would have them down there digging. And right. you know, Mike Rossi. A little bit of an aside about him. Uh, he was, and they both lived with Gacy in going in from 76 to 77, both for about six months. So th this was from six, 76 to 78. Gacy was by far the most active period. Like he killed tw 25 plus in that two year span, like just out, out, out there doing it. And, you know, this is like when Jeff Rignall is one of his victims that escaped after Gacy had him on the torture board in his garage for three days. And he was chloroforming him, chloroforming him over and over and over. And, and you know, uh, Jeff Rignall wakes up at one point and, you know, he tells the cops, he's like, I saw it wasn't it wasn't the, the big guy. There was a, a younger guy with brown hair that was performing fellatio on me when I came to, and then all of a sudden they knocked me out again. Like I, I talked to so many people that, that had near death experiences with Gacy where he'd pick them up and they'd jump out of the car at a red light because Gacy would immediately, as soon as he got a kid in the car, he'd become like sexually inappropriate, you know, like immediately, like kids would be like, Oh my God, you know, and they're, they're like jumping out of the car and running. And I had three, three guys tell me that there was a, a young kid driving the car and Gacy was in the back seat. You know, I mean, he, he just was operating in, in the question. And I asked Bill Kunkel, again, who's the lead prosecutor, you know, why, why didn't you why didn't you arrest Cram and Rossi? Because the very first question that Gacy asked when he was taken into custody is like, who else do you have in here? I, did, I wasn't working alone. And then when my father would press him on, there is a ton of Cram and Rossi stuff in the tapes. My dad was big. On getting Cram and Rossi arrested, and more that he was concerned that they were going to turn state's evidence and they were going to use. Cram. Are they still around? Are they still around? Cram killed himself, hung himself in a forest preserve about 15 years ago. Mike Rossi's alive, and I tried to interview him. 
what he what he say to you? Get lost. He, wanted, he said he wanted fifty grand. I said, what for you to deny? So you can deny everything? Pass. I'm like, you gonna be honest? If you're gonna be honest, I'll I'll come up with the cash. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what about the neighbors? I mean, that's a big question. I mean, the 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 smell, the digging at weird hours. What's going on there, Bob? So uh, that's one of the misconceptions about Gacy's house too. After McCoy, he knew uh, that he just couldn't leave the, the, the bodies down there buried under soil. So that's, he started using the lime immediately. There was no smell. Like there, there was like, it smelled like in 77, uh, leading into 78, like no, actually I think it was the, the, the spring of 78, he had Cram and Rossi lay 900 pounds of lime down in the crawl space. And at that point, all, all of the victims were skeletal. There was no de- decomposing flesh anymore. I mean, these, these bodies had been in there for years, and he had accelerated by using both lye and lime. Lime was used to, to cap the smell. You know, the, the, like the whole famous thing with Gacy about the cop who he invited in when they were tailing him during that 10-day investigation, and he you know, the furnace kicks on and the smell comes up and he's like, holy shit, I smell like, and there is no smell. Like, like, I'm sure the doctor, like, there, there is yeah. no smell like a, a deco- like a decomposing or a, a decomposition of a human body. There's nothing like it. So, but and what about, um, I'm sorry, Bob, but, and what about the, um, intelligence level of serial killers? You know, Bob keeps saying he, you know, he was really brilliant. He couldn't, you know, he remembered everything. Um, is there anything to that? Well, they, they were very bright in our study. They were above average, mostly, not all of them, certainly, because we remember we tried to divide them into two types. One with the more organized and very planned everything. And then the ones that were more impulsive and something went wrong at a particular point. But Gacy, I was, that's a great question. I was going to say, I don't think his IQ was any uh, more than average, was it? No, it was uh, yeah. it was slightly above, slightly above. Like, yeah, he was no but, genius, but he was very visual, and he certainly had a memory and and that. So that, uh, from what I understand, so he was able to, and he's very organized. It he was incredibly like, didn't he organized. Have a book? Didn't yeah. he have a book that he had all the victims in? Yeah, when wrestler when wrestler yeah. did that ninety four interview, he pulled out his big book. But yeah. in life. Like in terms of his business, like if we were to to equate what he made in his contracting business back in the seventies, would be the equivalent to about seven hundred and fifty thousand a year. Like the guy, he never slept. Like he was like a he was like when I call him an apex predator, unlike any that I've ever seen. He worked like a dog. Like I mean, he like his business was incredibly successful. And then he like his his kill time was four or five a.m. because he after he worked all day, like through the night, like he'd be visiting his, you know, his jobs and his job sites up until one, two in the morning. And then he'd go out and that's when he would troll. And, and like just so people understand, he had two pools like his M.O. was was the kind of the forlorn you know, the, the street hustler kids that were out there that had lost their way, that were doing anything that they could to survive. Those kids were his targets, but also kids that worked for him. You know, like there were, there were multiple employees that were employees of his that, that he ended up killing. So like he just, he had a type more than anything. 
you know. By, and, by the way, this is uh this is a quote from Bob Mata Sr. I kind of love this quote. Um sort of the old Chicago style. He asked Gacy, how in the hell did you dig in two feet? And Gacy answers, well, if you dig between the rafters, it's two by 12 rafters. You get almost another foot, Gacy responded. You'd have to be on your knees and you'd have to chop it with a spade, dig with your hands. So Gacy, uh, your dad, I think, said he was always, quote unquote, the smartest guy in the room, or at least he thought he was. He had an answer for everything. But in that case, he was... um, he was digging with his hands. There you go. The COE wow. pulling up that shot. That yeah. is creepy as hell right there. Um, let's play this last piece. Number five, Gacy kills McCoy. I've got Dr. Ann on. I got to get this other piece of sound in. Uh, number five, Space Coast. I took the knife. I think I stabbed him in the chest four or five times. How did you get the knife? Well, I tried to knock him off balance. Have you said you knocked him off balance? balance. You were holding his arm, and he slashed well, his Yeah, because he came down with the knife, and I knocked him over. When I, I fell on top of him. When I fell on top of him, the knife from his hand. Grabbed the knife from him, and... Just as after you had wrestled into the other bedroom. Yes. Then the front bedroom. he fell down, and you were on top of him. Yes. Did you have clothes on there? Did I have clothes on? Yeah. I think just underwear. Did he have clothes on? There's Sam. Yeah, Sam's I always asking think those questions. he had work. his Levi's on. Just his pants. No shirt, no shoes or socks. So he wasn't dressed to leave? No. Is he, he, I think he was saying that he was sorry, he was sorry, he didn't mean that he wasn't going to hurt me? Or, I don't know. You stabbed him four or five times? Yeah. Did he appear to die immediately or was he still alive? Was he breathing or did he appear to be lifeless? After the no, stabbing. I think after the first or second stabbing, all you could hear was the, the gargling of blood in his lungs. And I'm going to uh, go to you first, but I'm also I'm noticing on this mugshot on the right side. Look at that. He's smiling. What's going on? I know. On? I, was, uh, I was just going to comment on that. Most people, and it looks like it's, you know, he's kind of at a party, whereas most people look gaunt when they are having one of these yeah. mugshots. But that certainly is an unusual mugshot. You know, I, psychologically, going back to this idea that he hated his own homosexuality, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of relief that he's finally arrested. And and I don't know, maybe he could lay claim to the fact now that he's, you know, either caught and or killed homosexuals that he hates so much, if that's, yeah. well, you know, that's why he was on the first part of that. I totally agree with that, that, that he can't stop. He can't stop his killing. And we've heard that so much from others that it's that's why the police have to get them because they can't stop on their own. Um, I think the, the, the second part, though, is certainly the um, the narcissism that he has. You know, you can't he's got narcissism with the capital N. And um, I think the other part is the control when he's in control and, and managing things, which he does with his work. He is evidently very good and very effective if he's making that kind of money. So he does have uh, there are parts of him that are are certainly appropriate, if you want to use that word. But I'm still looking at he seemed to be doing OK up until the time um, in the with the wife and the two kids and then it's all kind of downhill 
when the wife leaves, right? The wife leaves after he gets convicted or sentenced for the um, sodomy charge, right? Right. And then his, his she, first wife, yeah, Marilyn. The first wife, and she leaves and takes the two girls with them, with her. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. and then the second wife obviously doesn't work out very well, and he's um, so something happens there. What I would want to do is to look at from on a timeline for when do the when does the behavior really start escalating? And yeah, I, I like frankly, doctor. Uh, I want to talk to you after we're off air. <laughs> um, like in terms of most people do, Bob. Yeah, no, I, I think we'll have a really fascinating conversation. Um, in terms of, and this has been my argument. So I have a little bit of a dispute with Bill Bill Dorsch, the cop. Bill's Bill's theory is that Gacy, after he was arrested on the sodomy charge, because what you're asking, he was doing all of that, like all of the exact same things that he was doing in terms of luring the kids in, plying them with alcohol, marijuana, getting them down in the basement. He had the pool table. He'd take kids. He'd get them in restraints. And it didn't just happen with with this this kid that he ended up getting convicted on. That kid's father just happened to be a politician. And when, when he caught wind of it, he's like, this guy's going down. And he yeah. did. So they're like, he was everything that was, that was going on in Chicago in terms of the way that he would build up to the kill was all happening in Iowa. Now, Bill thinks that what Gacy realized in, in prison, what that, that his mistake was, that he left his victim alive. And that's why Bill's argument is that that's when Gacy became a killer. My argument is I want to go dig up his barbecue pit in his house in Waterloo because I ain't buying it. Like, I, like, I just think, you know what I mean? So, you know, like, like Bill and I have this debate all the time. Like, is did he become active when he got out? Right. You know, was Bill right? Is that what turned him into a killer? Or did it predate it? You know, so... We'll find out because I fully intend on going and digging up that barbecue pit. Right. That barbecue pit he put at his house in Norwood Park where they found one of his victims that he had buried under the barbecue pit. Like he, oh. he'd have these huge barbecues and like be grilling food. Like there's there's pictures of him with a big sheeting grin grilling at one of these huge parties. All the while, one of his victims is sitting under this, like buried yeah. under this barbecue. Like, I mean, oh. the guy was beyond warped. You know, yeah. like he just had no, he had no ability to process what he was doing or just didn't care, you know, which is equally scary. Yeah. Um, they want to know, Bob, what was his reaction when he received the death penalty in court? Do we know? Uh, he didn't care. He didn't care. Uh, what about his kids? Any word on his kids? He had two children. Yeah. Uh, his kid, he never had any contact with his children. Like when, when he got out, uh, prison and he moved up to Chicago because basically they had, uh, they had approved his parole, which is what allowed him to leave because that was in Iowa. Theoretically, you're supposed to stay in the state that you're in, but they approved him and allowed him to move to Chicago, which was where his mother lived. His mother was the key to getting him, getting him to Chicago. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, I mean, he's here and he's doing what he's doing. So... It's just, you know, the, the whole story is so sordid, man. Yeah, just wow. looking at all these pictures. It's yeah. like a little bit of a story. So 
when we were interviewing uh, a cop, one of the cops, Dave Hackmeister, and all these old cops who were unbelievably great guys, man. Like, I just like, and I, I had a weird kinship with them because my father was part of the case. But so we're interviewing Hackmeister, and Hackmeister tells me, and, and all these cops had taken everything. Like, they stripped all of Gacy's, they took them all as souvenirs. Like, Bill Kunkel had his, uh, his, uh, bumper pool table and he had one of the garrots that he used his rope trick is what he called it like when i went to bill's house to record the the closing uh, argument he had it and bill uh, or uh, dave hackmeister had taken all of gacy's all of his photos from all of his photo albums like so so and i took 50 like I, he let me lay them out on this table and it was like all of Gacy's like marriage pictures, pictures with Carol, pictures with Marilyn when he's young. It was like unbelievable. So like they all the cops took all the souvenirs and they weren't they weren't shy about telling me like, yeah, we took everything. You know, it's like he wasn't coming back, you know, so it was like it was interesting, though. And the pictures are just so like you're sitting there and like Dr. Ann would be looking, trying to figure out, man, is is he there yet? Like looking at these pictures trying to figure out, is this guy, has he reached that point, you know, when you're looking at him in like 65, you know, and like in 66, it's just, he was. Did you worst. find any, did they find any paint supplies? Because he was a painter and one of your, um, one of your guests, Joel, asked about or compared uh, Gacy with um, uh, Sam Little, who also yeah. was a artist. Of yeah, Gacy didn't pick he up painted. the painting until prison. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was okay. that Got clowning it. thing. Yeah, he took very seriously. Like I, I know if people watch the Dahmer thing, that that you know that he decided to, uh, you know, at the end episode of the Dahmer series that came out on Netflix, that uh, Ryan Murphy had had like brought introduced Gacy into it at the very end, and that he had Gacy killing one of his victims in his clown garb. That didn't happen. Like Gacy wasn't running around and his like like Gacy that like Gacy took the clowning so seriously he would never mix it with with what he considered to be debauchery. Like like the the clowning was sacred to him. Like yeah. he loved clowning. He took it as a That's serious real, yeah. thing. Yeah. So it's uh, this is an interesting question. Um, and as far as we know, did he keep any trophies? Any what? relics? Yeah, my understanding was he he like other serial killers kept uh, licenses because have the picture had your picture on it, and I think school rings. Well, those are the two other objects too. But that was my understanding. I, I don't know, Bob, whether you agree with that. No, yeah, that's absolutely so. Uh, they yeah. did like I don't know if Gacy was keep like I don't think he was keeping them as souvenirs. I think that he was maybe the ring like. John Zick's ring, which is during the first search of the house, Desplaines police found this class ring with JAS, the, the John John A. Zick's ring, and it wasn't Rob Peast. So they, they thought it was a little strange that he had a class ring there. In the garage, they found two wallets that had driver's license in them, but those ended up being non-victims. They were, they were people like – David Cram, one of his little employees, went back there. The, the guy that I said was one of his accomplices, potentially, um, had gone back there. And he said, hey, John, where are these two wallets? And John's like, oh, I don't know. Just, you know, some some guy forgot them here when he was here. I don't know what they are. And so 
like when I was digging in, neither of those wallets were actually any of his victims because we're down to five unidentified victims. Like at this point, okay. they've gotten, like they've gotten 28 of them identified. So he like, he wasn't, he didn't keep souvenirs in the way that other guys did. You know what I mean? Like, like he didn't need to, to relive his fantasies through the souvenirs because he just kept doing it. What about the other five? Do they have, you know, the remains? Are they going to be able to yeah, run yeah, it? Yeah, like, oh. that's part of my war. Okay. Well, there could have been, been other victims that you just didn't know. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I can't believe three, he can't go three years without a victim. That's that's my entire point, doctor. Like, either either do I. Like, I ain't buying it. Like, that's why Bill and I are doing all this. Like, we're, we're boots on the ground. I'm not just, and everybody, if, like, you should watch, if you're interested in okay. any of this. Did Gacy have any contact with uh, John Norman or the uh, Cyril, the Candyman? No, I, there's there like any, any trafficking of the kids. There might have been. Um, so when I started my podcast, Tracy Ullman, not the comedian from yeah. England, but Tracy yeah. Ullman, the documentarian, who she had the the Devil in Disguise, which was a peacock thing. When I started doing the pod, I reached out to her and I'm like, "Yo." You know, if you have any research that you've done that you'd be willing to give me. And she was extremely upset with NBC because they had stripped her entire narrative, which was that Gacy was part of a yeah. bigger, much bigger pedophile yeah. sex trafficking ring. And NBC's like, no, we're not doing it because she really couldn't. She couldn't prove it. You know, it was like so yeah. speculative. NBC wasn't willing to go there. So but there, the, so. John David Norman had a like a little henchman, a guy that worked with him named uh, Paskey, Phil Paskey. The connection is, is that Phil Paskey was close friends with David Cram, which was Gacy's, one of Gacy's little henchmen. So there's definitely smoke there that that Norman could have been procuring kids because a lot of his kids, like Tim McCoy, his first kid, he snagged him at a at a bus station at the Greyhound bus station, coming from back from Iowa, heading back up to Minnesota, back home. And you know, I mean, there were two victims that we know for a fact were from Michigan. You know, so I mean, there like in, in Norman was that guy who just had the dossiers. You know, the unfortunate thing is they destroyed all of Norman's files. You know, where Bill and I probably would have loved to have been able to go on there and, and cross reference. Um, to, you know, go into NamUs and see if there's missing missing kids there uh, that happen to be in any of those files of his and kind of as a jump off point. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but apparently they destroyed all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. there are some of the victims. This is creepy. Uh, Trixie's creations for you. In 1969, my aunt took wow. a photo of Gacy as Pogo the Clown holding my cousin at a block party. Imagine that. Wow. That's um <laughs> That's insane. Mad Marsha says there have to be other victims elsewhere. Uh, exactly what Ann was just talking about. This is what fascinate, fascinates me. Was there any way Gacy knew of Dean Carroll uh, or some other ring? Where did he get such similar ideas? Caroline Miller, Gacy probably had victims from LaGrange to Oak Park to Cicero to Hinsdale to Elhurst, Illinois. So uh, as I said in the thumbnail, the story is uh, probably far from over. Here's another one. Did they check for missing boys in mm -hmm. Iowa as we start to wrap this up? Do we know if they searched uh, Iowa at all, Bob? That's what you got. They, they didn't do anything. Investigators. <laughs> that's my entire point. Like, that's what I've been saying. If people came in late and law enforcement did nothing, 
nothing. Like, literally, I'm, I'm working with an old Chicago cop and we're doing it. We're going to actually do the digs. If I have to pay the property owner in Miami and Elston to like, I'm going to try to appeal to his human nature and say, look, do you want to be potentially a heroic human being? Like if somebody came to me and said, hey, I think that there might be victims buried on your property. Do you mind if we check to see if they're there? I'd say without question, nobody would have to pay me to do it because I care about humanity. So we'll see how it plays out, but I'm going to get it done. Bill and I are going to get it done one way. Like Bill's 80. Like Bill, like this has been Bill's like thing for 20 plus years. Like Bill's like, Bob, I'm getting old. Like we got to do this. And like, I, I want to like our YouTube channel. You need to get, you need to get Ann Burgess on, on with you. <laughs> oh, She's young. I'll, and I'll it has more be, energy than both of us put together. I, I'm all about it. Like, like, and I'll definitely be reaching out to Dr. Burgess. There's no question about it. But if y'all need to, like, so I'm not as big as Joel at STS here, but we have our podcast oh, please. Our channel, Defense Diaries podcast. We've got uh, our YouTube channel. I have a lot of content with Bill Dorsch on there with the interviews of the, the people that lived in the building where we believe that Gacy buried some bodies is pretty interesting. Check it out. I'm sure that you guys have the link for our podcast channel. So look at Grant Lloyd. He just said, get Anna no, shovel. She shovel. Is, <laughs> she's, she's down. For those of you who have been living under a rock, uh, Dr. Ann Burgess, she is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse. She is the author of the killer by design in 2016. She was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing and uh, the Netflix show Mindhunters loosely based on her work. And she wrote a blurb for my book. So uh, yes, yes. you cannot Great. thank Anne Great enough book. for Great doing book. that. So uh, I've got, I've got a living legend who wrote a blurb. Um, <laughs> Dr. Anne, your final thoughts tonight on all this. I think you've just kind of scratched the surface of what really should be done. I think this is an age old question on, does he have more victims? And I think the answer is yes, for more people that I've heard from and certainly the accomplices that, that, or the contacts or something. There's much more to this than just John Wayne Gacy. Love the name John Wayne, right? <laughs> Never lived up to it though, right? A hundred percent. Did he embarrass that name? I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's just tragic that we don't have a lot of cases where you have young boys or males in general, so that I think it, it really heightens the importance of victims and how young males can suffer um, just as much as we really should be paying our attention to both males and females. So I, I thank Bob for bringing the case and Joel for bringing it on his show. By the way, I say it uh, jokingly, but I am serious. Anne has more energy than Bob and I put together. And uh, it's it's fascinating because she's still so interested in all of these things. I can only hope that in uh, 10 years from now, when I am her age, I will uh, I will ha I will have uh, as much interest and okay. uh, zest for life. Bob Mata. Looking tired, unlike Ann Burgess. He is a criminal defense attorney. I'm tired, it's bad lighting. He's the uh, he's the host. He's the host of uh, Defense Diaries podcast. First season is all about John Wayne, not the cowboy Gacy. Um, your final thoughts, Bob? Well, uh, first of all, it was an absolute uh, honor and pleasure to be on with Dr. Burgess. You are a brilliant mind, and I love that. It was uh, I really enjoyed doing this with you. So thank you for for being on with us. Uh, and look, I mean, we're not going to rest until, 
if we find no victims, then I, then I'm happy. If if we find one victim that I consider it to be well worth all the effort that we're putting into it, if I can give that family closure and that victim their name back. So I mean, we're we're going to be doing this, like like, and we're we're boots on the ground with it. So I, I mean, I hope that we can get some support out there in terms of we we want people to be aware of it because originally Bill and I were we didn't want to do it out in the sunlight because we were afraid law enforcement was going to try to cap us off at the knees. At some point we just became, we don't care, you know, and, and I, I feel like we're going to need public pressure at some point if we get resistance from law enforcement, because fact of the matter is if we find bones, the first call I have to make is to law enforcement to come over and process the scene. But at that point they're forced to do what they should have been doing for 40 years. So. Kudos to you, Bob, uh, not letting the story die and still advocating for the victims. So uh, extra kudos. Great guest tonight. Just subscribe to Bob's channel. You all should. Thank you, uh, thank you both uh, for being here. We will see you tomorrow, 1230 p.m. Eastern time, switching gears to the only fans murder out of, of course, Miami, because it's only fans. Tim Jansen will be back 1230 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. It is the story of Courtney Clenny and her boyfriend. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Boston, Massachusetts. Love you, Chicago, Illinois. Love you, Canada. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.